This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lang coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. The missile that hit a Polish village yesterday was probably a stray fired by Ukraine to defend the nation against Russia, according to the head of NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation. Jens Stoltenberg's comments and those of other NATO allies are likely to calm a situation that had threatened to escalate the war. Two people were killed in that incident, but Mr Stoltenberg says Russia bears ultimately responsibility for it. Europe correspondent Steve Kinane reports. When news first emerged of a missile attack on a Polish village, many were dreading that the war in Ukraine was about to intensify even further. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky accused Russia of a significant escalation, announcing with a sense of certainty that Russia had struck a NATO member with one of its missiles. But NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg has now suggested that the evidence points to the missile instead being fired by Ukraine in an act of self-defence. We have no indication that this was the result of a deliberate attack. And we have no indication that Russia is preparing offensive military actions against NATO. Our preliminary analysis suggests that the incident was likely caused by a Ukrainian air defence missile fired to defend Ukrainian territory against Russian cruise missile attacks. President Duda of Poland has backed NATO's claims that the strike was most likely the result of Ukrainian air defence. And US Secretary of Defence Lloyd Austin has told a press conference that the US has full confidence in Poland's assessment of the incident and its handling of the investigation into what happened. We have full confidence in the Polish government's investigation of this, of this explosion. And they've been conducting that investigation in a professional and deliberate manner. And so we won't get ahead of their work. We're going to stay in close touch with our Polish counterparts, as well as with our NATO allies and other valued partners. From the beginning, Russia has denied it was their missile that struck Poland, describing the reports as a deliberate provocation with the aim of escalating the situation. But NATO's chief says even if it was not a Russian missile, the Kremlin bears responsibility for the deaths of two Polish citizens. This is not Ukraine's fault. Uh, Russia bears the responsibility for what happened in, uh, in, in Poland yesterday because this is a direct uh, result of the ongoing uh, war and the wave of uh, attacks uh, uh, from Russia uh, against uh, Ukraine uh, yesterday. NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg ending Steve Kinane's report. G20 summits are mainly focused on economics, but the Russian invasion of Ukraine's dominated meetings in Bali. The summits issued a statement with most leaders condemning the ongoing brutality, urging the Kremlin to withdraw its troops. Anthony Albanese attended the talks and says Russia's increasingly isolated. The Prime Minister's also held more one-on-one meetings with world leaders there before packing his bags for the APEC summit in Thailand. Political reporter Matthew Doran is travelling with the Prime Minister and he filed this report from Bali. As the G20 wraps up, the race to the airport begins. US President Joe Biden, one of the first to jet off. But the diplomatic discussions continued for Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, Australia's leader taking a keen interest in his new British counterpart Rishi Sunak's official stationery, his red leather folder. I have a, a little uh, 
dollar fifty folder. <laughs> we're we're going to get you one of these. That's the commitment. Coming out of this. That's part of the uh, free trade agreement. Mr Sunak is the third person to occupy 10 Downing Street since Anthony Albanese won the Australian election in May. But like the previous occupants of his office, the AUKUS Security and Defence Pact was something he was eager to talk about. Rishi Sunak would be keen for Australia to pick British-designed nuclear submarines as part of the deal, even though the US model may be more likely. Mr Albanese not giving away who'll come out on top in any negotiations. You'll have to wait until March and we will, we will release... Uh, the, the documentation and we'll make announcements when appropriate. And on matters linked to submarines, there was another meeting Mr Albanese needed to make. Bonjour. Emmanuel Macron now seemingly best mates with Anthony Albanese after the Australian Prime Minister's Parisian rapprochement in July, where the Prime Minister apologised for the way his predecessor tore up the $90 billion future submarine contract with French shipbuilder Naval Group. Thank you, Mr Prime Minister. And think all of you to be here. Mr Albanese hoping the president will travel to Australia next year. France, of course, is an Indian Ocean power and a Pacific power as well. And uh, we spoke about uh, how we could have uh, an increased engagement and cooperation in defence and security matters. The Prime Minister believes the G20 summit in Bali was a success, with most world leaders coming together to condemn Russia's ongoing invasion of Ukraine. The role Chinese President Xi Jinping might play there, potentially crucial, something not lost on Anthony Albanese. I used the opportunity of the bilateral with President Xi to encourage him to use his influence to promote uh, peace and to uh, pressure uh, Russia into withdrawal from Ukraine. That's the solution here. The G20's host, Indonesian President Joko Widodo, used three words in his final address to the summit, stop this war. Simple to say, much, much harder to achieve. In Bali, this is Matthew Doran reporting for AM. The United Nations has questioned Australia's treatment of people in immigration detention centres and prisons amid concerns some practices might constitute torture. UN's Committee Against Torture is reviewing Australia's progress on meeting international human rights obligations. The committee is particularly focused on youth and immigration detention, the high rates of Indigenous incarceration and Aboriginal deaths in custody. Catherine Gregory reports. For six years, Latoya Rule has been protesting and advocating for a national legal ban on the use of spit hoods in prisons and detention. So spit hoods have been found to be a tool or instrument of torture right across the world. They have been referred to as Guantanamo Bay type inventions or mechanisms. Their brother, Indigenous man Wayne Feller Morrison, died in Royal Adelaide Hospital in 2016 after being restrained in a spit hood, handcuffs and ankle flexicuffs inside a prison van. I actually left my family in the intensive care unit and I walked straight to Parliament uh, to demand answers other than Premier of South Australia but I just knew that there was something unjust about what had happened to my brother. South Australia has since legally banned the use of spit hoods, but other states and territories are yet to follow, an issue that Latoya Rule has even taken to the United Nations. The UN's Committee Against Torture has just this week grilled Australian officials about the continued use of spit hoods during two public hearings into the treatment of people in detention. Ilya Putze from the committee. The use of spit hoods really can uh, amount to 
ill treatment. And in some cases, as we see, they even have fostered worsening of person's physical health and even leading to the death. The committee also criticised Australia's high rates of Indigenous incarceration and Aboriginal deaths in custody and asked what's being done regarding the allegations of abuse in juvenile detention. Measures taken to ensure that juveniles deprived of liberty are not held in solitary confinement under any circumstances. The committee's rapporteur, Erdogan Iskan, also expressed alarm over Australia's approach to imprisoning asylum seekers and the impact of indefinite detention. The committee notes the severe and detrimental impact of the long-term immigration detention on the health and psychosocial well-being of asylum seekers and refugees. Last month, the UN's torture prevention body, also known as the SPT, was on a visit to Australia, but had to suspend it because New South Wales and Queensland didn't allow the delegation to visit places of detention. The unusual move has raised further questions about Australia's commitment to meeting its obligations around torture and human rights. Australia's Human Rights Commissioner, Lorraine Finlay. Our failure to engage really has damaged Australia. The Australian government has provided some preliminary responses to the UN's questioning, saying it's working to have the SPT resume its visit soon and it remains committed to reducing high rates of Indigenous incarceration as well as protecting the human rights of all people in detention. Catherine Gregory reporting. Remember the federal sports rort saga? This next story has been labelled an extreme version of that. The Tasmanian government's been facing allegations of election pork barrelling lately with more damning information coming to light. AM can reveal grants promised by the Liberals during last year's state election campaign for sporting clubs and organisations were later funded through a secretive process that avoided the usual parliamentary scrutiny. Alexandra Humphreys reports. The $15 million grant scheme has already been criticised by transparency experts because of its potential for taxpayer funds to be misappropriated. But now it turns out funding for 111 projects promised by the Liberal government at the 2021 state election never went through Parliament as they should have, despite assurances from the government that they had. Geoffrey Watson, a director at the Centre for Public Integrity, says it's a major concern. It's really very bad practice. We've all heard of car park rorts and sports rorts. Uh, the fact is that they're emerging and coming to light and it's got to be stopped. The one in Tasmania seems an even extreme version of any of that. It just seems to be as though politicians regarded themselves as having access to money which they could allocate as their sole discretion. Grant recipients were chosen by internal Liberal Party members during the election campaign based on requests from Liberal candidates. Details of the grants only emerged when Liberal Party documents were accidentally leaked. Since then, a series of links between grant recipients and Liberal candidates have emerged, including $150,000 awarded by an MP to a rowing club her daughter was a member of. The striking feature of all of this is that there's no transparency about it because it's never been debated in Parliament, because it wasn't put before the people at the relevant time. Nobody knew that it was happening, much less did the people know why it was being done. So it's actually uh, not a question of transparency, it's really a question of secrecy. Right to information documents show after the May 1st election, the Premier's office and Treasury scrambled to fund some of the promises before the end of the financial year. 
With no time to pass an appropriation bill, they asked Tasmania's new governor to sign off on $2.5 million in payments using laws designed for urgent spending from the Treasurer's Reserve. It's unclear what explanation was provided to the governor as the basis for the request. Tasmanian Greens leader Cassie O'Connor says the money is supposed to be there for times of crisis, such as after floods or bushfires. I think the people of Tasmania are owed an explanation about this pot of money and why there was such, such an ugly haste to get that $2.5 million so soon after the election. University of Tasmania law lecturer Anya Hilkemeyer says parliaments should hold the keys to public coffers. The fundamental principle is that parliament, the democratic institution that debates things in public, should hold the purse strings to give an opportunity for that debate about the merits of particular uh, spending. Tasmanian Governor Barbara Baker was unavailable for comment. A government spokeswoman didn't answer a series of questions posed by the ABC. She said the government worked to deliver election commitments as soon as possible. Alexandra Humphreys reporting there. Telstra is facing criticism for not adding extra battery power on mobile phone towers that are essential to rural communities and bushfire-prone areas. Fires raged through the West Australian town of Corrigan earlier this year with electricity and phone lines knocked out. At the time, Corrigan's mobile phone towers only had between three and five hours of battery backup. Residents say that's not enough in a crisis and as summer approaches, they're getting nervous. Here's National Regional Affairs reporter Eliza Borello. The weather's getting warmer in Western Australia's wheat belt and farmer Murray Williams is on edge. He farms near Corrigan, two and a half hours east of Perth, and in February a bushfire tore through a thousand hectares of his property, taking with it sheds, a worker's cottage and almost his own house. I am very nervous. Uh, there was a fire struck by lightning in the district last week and uh, the smoke coming across the valley the same way, same direction as the fire came in February. And uh, I certainly got very nervous. I got scared. Sven Anderson is the superintendent for the West Australian Department of Fire and Emergency Services in the Upper Great Southern. He says 80 people participated in rural fire training in the Shire of Corrigan in the past three months. It's an impressive statistic in a shire of just over 1,000 people and an increase of 70% on the number of people trained last year. It's a massive result. People who were impacted and their neighbours have seen the, you know, the need um, for further training and uh, have jumped on board. Sven Anderson says the training emphasises the importance of using two-way radios rather than relying on the mobile phone network, which went down during February's fire. I think everybody uses their mobile phone now more than they ever have, but then obviously we need to make sure that we have a redundancy. Murray Williams agrees, but he also thinks Telstra should have added extra backup battery power to the local phone towers in the nine months since the fire. The batteries are there to kick in when electricity to the towers is knocked out. One of the frustrating things is that there are a lot of issues with fires that are brought up in, in the um, review of fires every time and and they are not fixed. Murray Williams is not the only resident to have told the ABC something needs to be done. Boyd Brown is the regional manager for Telstra in WA and says the telco has a big country to service. It would be great if we could go out 
with one swoop and upgrade all batteries and have generators, but realistically that's that's not possible. He says Telstra plans to trial a new system where a trained member of the community could plug a generator into the local tower rather than waiting for a technician. We're just waiting on manufacture and supply of the units, but it'll be before mid-next year. So unfortunately we won't have them in place prior to this bushfire cyclone season. That's Telstra Regional Manager Boyd Brown, ending that report from Eliza Borello. Nearly 50 years since man last walked on the moon, NASA successfully launched a new mission with three dummies on board. The trio was blasted into space, attached to the world's most powerful rocket. This program's aimed at taking humans back to the lunar surface within three years. With more, here's Angus Randall. And here we go. Ten. Hydrogen burn-off igniters initiate. Seven, six, five. NASA's crewless Artemis One mission heads towards the moon. Two, one. Boosters in ignition. And liftoff of Artemis One. We rise together back to the moon and beyond. It's the first in the next generation of spaceflight. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson says it could not have gone better. For what we saw tonight, it's an A+. It's a test flight. Took a long time coming to get here. Last time we were on the moon, Apollo 17, and we still have a long ways to go. And this is just the test flight. And we are stressing it and testing it in ways that we will not do to a rocket that has a human crew on it. It's been 50 years since mankind last left its footprints on the moon. The Artemis program hopes to see astronauts return to the lunar surface by 2025. Bill Nelson says the moon is just a stepping stone for greater exploration. Why are we uh, going back? Because our call is we're going out to explore the heavens. Now we're going back to the moon, not just for the sake of going to the moon, but to learn how to live on the moon in order to prepare to send humans all the way to Mars. The Artemis launch has faced lengthy delays. It was supposed to take off in August, but there have been engineering difficulties alongside two hurricanes that hit the region. Spectators, a safe distance from the Florida launch pad, watch as the next era of spaceflight begins. Gray Settle was working for NASA when man walked on the moon. I just thought back for all the years I started with NASA in 1962 and worked 55 years, and then I worked on Artemis flight software requirements. So I was just thinking of all the work and so dedicated and diligent to make it work right. And that's what I thought about, and tears came to my eyes. I have to admit it, you know, but uh, I just was overwhelmed. The Orion capsule will sail within 97 kilometres of the moon's surface before looping back to Earth. Inside are three test dummies fitted with sensors to measure radiation levels and other stresses the real-life astronauts may eventually face. If successful, Orion will splash down on December 11th. Angus Randall reporting. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. Donald Trump's announced his third official presidential campaign. 
What does it mean for the multiple criminal investigations he's facing and possible charges that could follow? Today, a former Watergate prosecutor on how Trump is using his candidacy to shield himself from his legal woes. Why, in her view, it won't work. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.